Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. What I thought I would do today is take us back to the book of Acts. where We've got this very clear picture of the church as it's beginning, as it's beginning to expand, as it's beginning to, to unfold. And we've got this picture in Acts chapter 4. We're going to spend the whole time in Acts chapter 4 today of the first opposition that the church faces. Everything's going great, and then boom, opposition. And I think there's some parallels. I think there's some similarities to what we're experiencing as a church and this momentum that we have and how God is growing and expanding the kingdom as a church. And I want to show you how it matches what we see in scripture. Y'all okay with that? Can we do that today? Good. You didn't get a vote. You just decided to show up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do that. There, there are several, several phrases that we can use from time to time to describe what it's like to come to a point of no return, right? Once, once something is done, it can't be undone. You, you've probably heard some of these phrases. Have you heard the phrase, you can't unring a bell? Can't unring a bell. How about, there's nothing you can do about it now? How about, that ship has sailed? You have heard that one before? The cat is out of the bag. You can't unscramble an egg. I don't know where that one came from. It was just, it showed up in the list. It's been set in stone. Some of you have used that before. Oh, it's already set in stone. And here, here's, the, uh, here's, here's the one that comes down. What's done is done. And for those of you parents of toddlers like me, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Though you try and try and try. It really comes down to being unstoppable is what it comes down to. And we will look back on the early church after the resurrection, after the empowerment of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we see something start to emerge and its impact is so tangible. Its momentum is so unstoppable, so unstoppable. I was reminded uh, earlier this week, preparing for this message, um, there is an ESPN sports commentator named Dan Patrick. How many of you familiar with Dan? Dan Patrick, I watched a lot of ESPN growing up. And as he was covering basketball, basketball games and talking about these players that were just unstoppable in their own right, guys that you just give them the ball, they were so on fire, they could not be stopped, could not be contained. Here's what he said. He's famous for saying this. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. And here's the truth I want you to know today, church. What God has started, the devil cannot stop. He can't stop it. He can't stop the church. He can only hope to contain it. He can only hope to contain it. And the amazing part, the church not only grows through success and, and intentionality, it grows through adversity. The devil can't stop what God has started. Our last conversation in Acts that we spoke about a couple weeks ago, Jesus had just told the disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They assembled in unity and obedience. We call that one accord. And the Holy Spirit came in a powerful way to empower them to be witnesses, not just in their homes, but in their towns or communities and throughout the world. And they tried to go back to life as normal, but something had drastically changed in them and in their hearts. And on a trip to the temple to pray, Peter and John came across a crippled man who they healed in the name of Jesus and it sent everyone into an uproar. Everyone passed this guy every single day for 40 years, scripture tells us, 
and they healed him in the name of Jesus. And let me tell you, the cat was out of the bag. They couldn't stop it. This guy starts jumping up. He leaps. He's walking around. Everyone is standing amazed. And then Peter, now don't miss this. The same Peter who just a few verses before had retreated into himself, ashamed and embarrassed, back to fishing, back to his old life, now stands up in the middle of all of this commotion, takes leadership, and he, this newly empowered boldness he has from the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says, and this is my paraphrase. He says, don't be surprised at this. That same Jesus who you waited for yet crucified has risen from the dead. This is his work. This is his doing. This is Jesus, not us. Look at Acts 3.16. This is his actual words. He says this, And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And it gets better. Peter, with his newfound boldness, says this to the people who gather around. Next verse, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And this healing, this confrontation, and this interaction sets into motion this series of events that brings us the first opposition of the spread of the gospel through the church. It's kind of like when everything's going well for you, and then boom, you have a setback. Something appears to set you back. Remember our phrase, you can't stop it? You can only hope to contain it? Here's my big question for you today, something I want you to be thinking about as I continue to speak. If the devil can't stop the church, how can he hope to contain it? If the devil can't stop it, how can he hope to contain it? Here's the truth I want you to know, church. The devil can't stop the church, but he can try to contain you. You, the individual believer. The church can't be defeated from the outside, but it can be contained, slowed down, or rendered irrelevant from the inside if you and I aren't careful. And that's what we see in this passage that I'm about to read to you. The enemy's strategy for stopping the church is to contain the individual believer, to keep you down, to keep you disconnected, and believing the lies that will rob you from fulfilling your place in the body of Christ. And I want to share with you this story of the first opposition that the gospel faces, that the church faces, in hopes that you'll see some parallels to your own life and how the enemy wants to keep you down and locked up. Are y'all buckled in? You ready to go? Here's, where, here's how the enemy tries to contain Peter and John. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read a lot of verses here, but we'll break them up. Number one, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Look at this verse, number four, very important. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. There was a likely a lot more than that. It was just the number of men that had believed. From that one moment, that healing, and the message that Peter preached that day, we have over 5,000 that were born again. They were arrested, put in jail, but the damage was already done. This thing was starting 
to grow. Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, now stop just for a second. This is the same Peter that we just read about a little bit ago. And for those of you that know your Bibles well, how does a common fisherman, a common fisherman, stand up and address rulers, government officials, educated experts, religious authorities? How does somebody like Peter stand up in a moment like that and speak and tell them what's going on? I'll tell you how he does it. It's with boldness. And where does that boldness come from? Answer? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered what you would say in a moment like that? You ever wondered what would happen if, if you had to speak truth in a powerful moment like that? And I get asked often sometimes as a pastor, how do you, how do you know what to say? How, how do you know what to, what to share and how to do in those moments? And, and uh, can I tell you that sometimes there's no right words to say. It's almost like you just have to rely on your heart in those moments. And I'm grateful Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34. This isn't on the screen, but I'll help you. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I know you normally hear that verse in the context of somebody who maybe dropped an F-bomb, right? In a conversation like, oh, I'm sorry. Where did that come from? I know where it came from. It came from your heart. Out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But let me help you. There are times when all you have to do is just set your heart for somebody. Set your heart for a conversation. You never have to worry about what to say because out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth will speak. Somebody going through a tragedy, somebody going through a hard time, somebody going through something unexpected, just take a minute. Set your heart for that person, for that situation, and then watch how the abundance of the heart will speak through your mouth and you never have to worry about what to say in those moments. I think that's what was happening with Peter. He didn't have a moment to prepare this sermon. He didn't have a moment. He was standing in front of rulers and authorities and religious experts. He had all these eyes looking to him, yet with such boldness, because he knew where his heart was set, he was able to speak. And here's what he says, verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by, me, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Look at this next verse. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Kind of weird that he would jump straight into architectural language in the middle of all this, but I need you to see something important. Peter's having a conversation with religious authorities and religious leaders. These are guys who would know their scriptures, but they missed, of all the scripture knowledge they had, they missed seeing Jesus, the Messiah, brought to them. It was foretold to them by these scriptures. So Peter's taking a moment in this sermon and he's saying, hey, I want you to see how you missed this. But he takes them back to a passage of scripture with this sentence. This is from Psalms 118. And when he says what he says to them about Jesus being the stone that was rejected, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, here's what comes to their mind as he's saying this. Psalms 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 
This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And look at this. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's almost as if Peter was given a sermon to the people and then a sermon to the religious leaders. And he said, look, don't miss it. This is God. You're blaming me, but this is God doing this and you're missing it. But here's the cool part. That same passage, Psalms 118, with both Peter and the religious authorities were familiar with. Look at verse five. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. What do you think Peter was thinking about in that moment? You can't touch me. He can't, you can't touch me. What can man do to me? And in this passage, we see what I think is the first thing in this story that the enemy wants to use in your life to try to contain you from fulfilling your part in the church and helping it grow and expand. And here's that first thing for you, a fear of man. The enemy wants to use a fear of man. Now, I know looking at me, this is going to be hard for you to believe, but growing up in elementary school, I had a bully. Y'all aren't supposed to laugh. You're supposed to be, no, Pastor Don, there's no way. Not everybody picked on me, but this one kid in particular. And I was about fourth grade, and this was the time in my life where the man I affectionately call my father, the only dad that I've really known, came and married my mom. And this was our first real father-son interaction. And looking back on it, I can think of a lot of different ways that I probably would have counseled me as a young boy to deal with this bully. But here was my dad's advice to me in the moment to deal with this bully. He said, son, when you get to school the next day, I want you to walk up to him, ball up your fist, and punch him square in the nose. <laughs> Again, there's a lot of other ways that I'll, if you're dealing with a bully, come see me after. I'm going to help you. Um, and I said, but, I said e you're crazy. He's going to beat me up. Like, don't you, like, he's been this... What do you mean? Just go hit it. He said, I'm telling you, just walk up and just punch him straight. Don't ask any questions. Don't say anything. Just walk up and just nail him right in the nose. I said, he's going to beat me up. Did you miss that part of the whole thing? And here's what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, son, he may beat you up, but he can't eat you. I got to thinking, and for 10-year-old me, that was all the encouragement. You're right. He could beat me up, but I'm still going to be here. He can't eat me. So I was a little smarter than that. I waited till he was right by the teacher on the playground. <laughs> and I did. I did. I popped him right in the nose and he jumped on me and the teacher broke us apart just as I had imagined it would happen. And he took us to the principal's office and I'll never forget my dad walking in. We're both sitting there in front of the principal. And my dad walks in and he says, son, you can go back to class. And the principal says, no, he needs to stay here and listen to this. And my dad, I was so proud of him, stood up and says, no, he's going to go back to class. I told him to do that. And so I'm sitting here thinking, a fear of man in that moment was something that, that, that stood out to me and it helped me. And I started to realize at the end of the day, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? And again, I'm not saying you're dealing with a 10-year-old with a bully. But at the end of the day, what can man really do to you? 
And listen, this fear of man is so, so challenging and it's so deceptive. You may not even know that you're dealing with it. If, if, you, if you value more what other people think about you than what God thinks about you, you may be struggling with the fear of man. And the enemy will use that to keep you from making an impact for himself or for, for God. If you seek after the approval of others more than you seek after the approval of God, that's a fear of man. If you need every effort or achievement to be recognized by someone. That's a fear of man. And let me tell you, church, a fear of man will cripple a believer from fulfilling the mission of God. Listen, the devil cannot stop us. But if he can trip you up, if he can contain you, he can keep you from being a part of what God is doing. And that's what I'm trying to help you with. Peter goes on, verse 12. He says, and there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Isn't it amazing how people can argue with your words, but they can't argue with your experience? They can argue and debate and tell you this and all day long. But for those of you that knew who you were and knew who you are now, who've had an experience with Jesus, look at me. The person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Never. And here's the second way that the enemy wants to contain you. He wants to give you a self-doubt or a doubt in yourself. Let's put those verses 12 through 14 back up. Look at this. He perceived that they were uneducated men common men. They just recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The enemy will try to convince you that you're not smart enough, that you're not equipped, you're not wise enough. And if the enemy can get you to doubt yourself, he can contain you. He can contain you. And listen, if you ever find yourself in a conversation with somebody who's trying to debate God or the existence of God or all of these things, well, I watched a documentary and they said that Bible wasn't true and all that. All you have to do in those moments, church, is just stand in front of them and say, you know who I was a few years ago? I didn't watch that documentary. I didn't read all those books. I'm probably not even as smart as you, but I know who I was then and I know who I am now. And that is Jesus Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Verse 15. Again, a doubt in self will cripple you and keep the enemy from using you. You are more than you think you are. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. I can only imagine how that would go, right? They sit there, they have this tribunal, they get all these people in front of Peter and John, and they know they can't argue with them, they know they can't stop them, they can't deny what has happened, so they're going to talk among themselves. And here's what they say, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Can't stop it. We can hope to contain it. Verse 18, so they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right on the side of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Remember, the person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. You are more equipped to talk to people about Jesus, having walked through and walked with Jesus your own life, than anybody who has read any amount of books or any apologist on the face of this earth. You are the testimony. The Bible tells us that we are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus did for us, and the word of our testimony. What God has done in your life is enough. You do not need to doubt yourself. I'm telling you, the enemy can't stop it. He can only hope to contain it. I love this. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Here's my question for you. Where do you go after a spiritual victory? or in a moment of defeat? Where do you go? Are you doing life with others? Is there somebody that you can call, that you can pick up? They had people that they could go to in that moment. Do you? Who's getting your 2 a.m. phone call? And we see in this passage, the enemy is trying to contain what the church is doing, what God is doing in the middle of this. And he brought them a fear of man and he tried to bring them doubt in themselves. And here's the next thing that the enemy will try to use to contain you from what God wants to do in your life. It's number three, doing life alone. Doing life alone. Can I tell you, salvation is intimately individual, but Christianity is a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. Next to who you trust for salvation and your eternity, next to who you choose for your marriage, who you choose to live life with will make the biggest impact on your life. I'm telling you. This week I was on the phone, I was on the phone visiting with a father whose son was facing liver failure. He just he didn't know what to do. And his wife calls a friend and says, Hey, can you come over? And this is what this father told me. He said, he came over, we sat in his truck, and I just cried. So I just cried. He didn't know what to say, and I didn't need him to say anything. But I was so glad that he was able to come and to be there. Listen to me, church. In a moment of crisis, people don't rise to the occasion. They fall to their greatest level of preparation. You're not automatically prepared to excel through crisis. It doesn't work that way. When crisis comes, you will fall to whatever level of preparation that you have. And I'm so proud of you and I'm so proud of our church, the way that we have loved and prayed for and given and supported the Simmons family. There was over 500 people at that funeral attendance. There was a line out the door to visit with them and to share condolences and to pray with them. And listen, who they trusted for salvation, who they trusted for their marriage, who they trusted to do life with, absolutely made the difference in how they're able to walk through this tragedy. I just tell you, after leading you to Jesus, it may be my greatest responsibility as a pastor to lead you to other people so that you can do life with them. Christianity is individual, but it is a team sport. It is a team sport. And I'm telling you, if you want God to do something in your life, it will involve other people. The kingdom of God is built upon relationship, church. Think about it. Everything God does in your life 
comes in the form of a relationship. Many of you are here today because of a relationship that you have. Even salvation itself, the greatest gift God could give us, came in the form of relationship with Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is built upon relationship. We are better together. I've heard it say you're only as sick as your secrets. I'm going to tell you, you're only as weak as you are isolated. Think about the moments when you struggled the most. You were isolated. You were lonely. And the enemy knows that. Look what happened when they went with their friends, verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And they quote Psalms 2 in this next section. Why did the, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. How cool it must have been for them to have this new meaning to all this scripture that they had known. To go their whole lives reading and studying these things that God was promised and then to see lived out for them right before their very eyes with Jesus. To see the persecution that they were facing that God would still come back and prevail in the middle of this. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't it important to know that no matter what comes into your life, it comes through the hands of God? No matter what happens. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and the last one I'm going to share today. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And when they had prayed, I told you the enemy can't stop the church. He can only hope to contain it. And the only way he can contain it is by trying to contain you. And he'll do this by giving you a fear of man, by thinking other people are more important than what God thinks. He'll do this by giving you a doubt in yourself that you're not equipped, you're not capable, you couldn't possibly do that. He'll do this by causing you to live life alone, to think that you can do this, that you'll automatically have everything you need in a moment of crisis when it comes. And here's the fourth thing and the last thing I'll share with you today that the enemy wants to use to contain you and to keep you. It's this, a lack of prayer. A lack of prayer in your life. Can I tell you the most common New Year's resolution I hear people share isn't losing weight, isn't getting back in the gym, it isn't eating better, it isn't doing all those things. The most common New Year's resolution I hear from Christians at the beginning of every single year is this right here. Pastor, I I need to pray more. I need to pray more. I need to grow in my prayer life. In a time when all society is looking toward making resolutions to better or improve their lives, I can't think of a better way than to grow in your prayer life. And can I tell you, we want to help you. We go way out of our way to try to help you grow in your prayer life because it's that important. Every Monday night, every Monday night, we have prayer in here in this room. 
It starts at six o'clock sharp and we're out by 7 p.m. sharp. Ask anybody who's here. They make fun of me because we're out at like seven. And I know how important it is to your family that you get back to them in the evening. But whether you've been born again for two minutes or 20 years, I want to help you grow in your prayer life. And that's how we do it, by being in an environment where we continue to help other people pray. How many of you would say, Pastor Don, I need to, I need to pray more this year in my life? Absolutely you do. Here's the second thing we're doing to help people grow. We start every year with a week of prayer and fasting. Listen, scripture's clear. God is honored by the first fruits and we wanna give him the first of our year. We set aside a week every year and we have forever to pray and to fast, to come together and do that. Fasting denies your flesh and feeds your spirit. It does. And I know this week, as a result of our, our week of prayer and fasting, many of you will be, will be fasting specific meals. Some of you will be fasting uh, specific foods and things like that. So you may ask, Pastor, how much? How much should I fast? How, how long should I fast? What is enough? And just like reading your Bible, just like giving and serving, fasting and prayer are spiritual disciplines. And scripture says that we should, listen to this, but it doesn't say how much. It doesn't say how much is enough. Why is that? Because those disciplines are ones we're supposed to be growing in and continue to grow in. And I would encourage you the same way with your fasting and with your praying, that I would encourage you with you reading your Bible, that I would encourage you with serving, that I would even encourage you with your giving. Take a step, stretch yourself, do more than you have done. Trust that there's more in you than, you're cap than you feel like you're capable of doing. And as those disciplines grow in our physical lives, we grow in our spiritual lives as well. Well, Pastor Don, I need a little more than that. How much should I read in my Bible in order to know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I would answer it this way. How much do you want your mind to be renewed? So I don't know about you, but this thing gets a little dirty up here. And I need that word to wash me and to renew me. And I need as much of that word as I want to be renewed every single day. For you, that may be opening the Bible and reading for yourself. For you, that may be setting aside 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It may be grabbing a commentary and studying God's word for the first time. Take a step, do more than you've done. How much should I give, Pastor Don? How much should I give financially in order to know that I'm doing enough? How much do you wanna be blessed? These disciplines that the Bible talks about, put it on us to grow. We can have as much of God as you want. As much of God as you want. How much should I pray, Pastor Don? How much do you wanna connect with God? How much do you wanna connect? If you wanna walk with him every day, then be in prayer every day. How much should I fast, Pastor Don? How much should I do without? How much do you wanna feed your spirit? That's how much you should fast. And with this next week, listen, I wanna encourage you the same way with fasting as I would any other spiritual discipline in your life. Take a step, do more than you've done, stretch yourself. The enemy wants to contain you. He wants to keep you and you're capable of more than you think. This is your church. 
and I'm your pastor, I want to encourage you to fast with us. Something. Watch what God does in your heart and in your mind as you take that step and give him more. Listen, don't just not eat. That's starving. I'm not asking you to go on a diet. I'm asking you to fast. I'm asking you to replace. I'm actually asking you to take the time that you would normally take eating and get in your word and get in prayer. Feed your spirit instead of feeding your body. And if you come to me this next weekend and say, Pastor Don, I didn't eat for a whole week straight. I'm not going to be impressed. I'm not. That's not what I'm asking. But if you come and say, Pastor Don, I took something that was really important to me that I spent a lot of time thinking and preparing for, and I set it aside, and God spoke to me, and it was hard, but he provided for me. He sustained me. I went without sugar all week long, and every time I had a craving, it reminded me of why I was doing it, and I said, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for doing more in me than I can do in myself. Pastor Don, I got off of social media all week long. I would applaud you for that one. But I took the time that I would normally spend scrolling, and I spent it turning the pages of my Bible. The enemy cannot stop what God is doing in this church. He can't do it. Ain't gonna happen. What Jesus has done was perfect and provided for everything. Not just your past sins, your present sin, your future sin as well. It was perfect and flawless. The only hope the enemy has to contain what God is gonna do is to keep you from all that God has for you. And this is the time to grow. You're dealing with a fear of man? Fasting will help you with that. You're dealing with doubt and self? Fasting will help with that. You're doing life alone? Fasting will help with that. Even if you just took the time that you would normally spend watching TV and you picked with the phone and called a friend and asked them what God was doing in their heart and their mind, God would do a work in your life and through your life. If your schedule allows, I want you to join us every night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night at six o'clock. We're going to be in here. We're going to worship fill our spirits. We're going to pray over every card. Kristen told you earlier, grab one of those red prayer cards. Do not walk out of the sanctuary without sharing a need with us. We pray over every single one of those cards. You don't even have to put your name at the bottom if you don't want anybody to know. If you do, we'll call you. We'll find out what God is doing. We pray over those cards every single time we come together. We're going to be strengthened and encouraged, and then we're going to pray together and for our community devil can't stop the church he can only hope to contain you amen here's how he wants to do it here's how the enemy can contain you a fear of man a doubt in self doing life alone and a lack of prayer and listen church if any of these are present in your life the devil has contained you and last I checked there's still pride poverty and prejudice all in Acadiana we need you I shared with the team earlier today God and his sovereignty, the creator of heaven and earth, looked over all of eternity and he said, right here, right now, is when I want this person to be here. It's when I want you to be here. 
God could have put you anywhere. He could have put you in the Middle Ages. How many of you are grateful for indoor plumbing? He could have put you in the middle of the Reformation. He could have put you at any point in time. You could have been wandering the earth with Egypt, with the, with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, but he didn't. He put you here right now in Acadiana for this time and for this place. And I just got one question for you. Why? Why? Why did he orchestrate all that he did, that he could have done anything, and he decided to put you right here? Can I tell you it's for a reason? It's for a purpose. It's that God wants to do something not only in you, but wants to do something through you. And that's the greatest miracle of Christianity when a person wakes up spiritually and starts to realize that this has a lot more to do with what God wants to do through us than what God wants to do in us. But if you'll allow the enemy to take this fear of man, this doubt in yourself, doing life alone, and then a lack of prayer, the enemy will contain you. And God will use somebody else. Can I tell you, I don't want God to use anybody else. I want God to use me. And I want all that he has for me. And I pray that, he, that you want all that he has for you. But all of this starts with a relationship with Jesus. Can I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes? I'm gonna ask you a question. Probably the most important question that I could ask you. Have you been born again? You see, a relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with how religious you are, how long you've been in church, whether you've been baptized or even christened. Remember, Jesus was having a conversation with the religious leader who had checked all of those religious boxes in John chapter three. And here's what Jesus said to him. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven unless you were born again. And I want to tell you to be born again, to acknowledge what God is doing in your heart. You couldn't even see it if he hadn't started working inside your heart, if he hadn't taken you from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Don, will you pray with me? I want to be born again. I want to acknowledge what God is doing on the inside of my heart. I see it for the first time and I want to enter in to the kingdom of heaven. When I die, I want to know that the first face I see will be the face of Jesus welcoming in. I'll tell you, it's as simple as ABC. A is admit. Admit that your sin has separated you from a loving and a holy God. It's B. Believe that he sent his son Jesus not only to die for our sins, to pay a debt that we could not pay, but to live a life that we couldn't live. And that he sent him for you and for me. And then C, it's to confess him as Lord and Savior and King. To know that his way is better. That it's not about just making a decision, it's about making a disciple. It's about choosing to follow him, no matter what it costs you. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Donna, I admit that my sin has separated me. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent for me to empower me to live this life that you're telling me I can live. And I'm ready today to confess him as Lord and Savior, as King, as ruler of my life. And you'd like me to pray with you. I'm gonna ask you from right where you're sitting, every head bowed, every eye closed. Can you just raise your hand so I know who I'm praying with? Right now, all across this room, I'm gonna invite you to raise your hand right now. Thank you, I see your hand. Thank you, I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you, I see your hand. 
I see your hand. Anybody else? Up in the balcony. Thank you, I see your hand. Still time. You haven't missed that moment. Thank you, I see your hand. You're not fighting me, you're fighting embarrassment. What will happen? What will think? What will other people think? That fear of man that we spoke about is being broken right now in the name of Jesus. That doubt in self that's telling you, even right now, you've tried this before, you can't do it. You've tried to make your, your life better. You can't do it. That's a doubt in self. I'm breaking it in the name of Jesus right now. If you're here today and you want to do life with others, you're tired of living it on alone, let me see your hand one more time and then we'll pray. Anybody else? Thank you, I see your hand. I see your hand. I see you. I see your hand. Church, I'm going to ask everybody to repeat after me as I pray with those who have raised their hands, symbolizing the fact that none of us do Christianity alone. Let's pray this out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, my guilt, and you died for it. I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's celebrate with those who raise their hands.